This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Wall Street Journal story of the day. And the Wall Street Journal isn't just for business readers, folks. It's America's Journal. Pick it up. And once again, we're going to hear from their regular contributor and our resident doctor on the show, Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. And here's Dr. Ely sharing his moving story, What I Learned from a Dying Patient. I had a patient recently whose death was particularly harrowing. 39 years old, PhD, scientist, brilliant. She was sent to the ICU team as a fascinoma, meaning a person with a constellation of problems the doctors couldn't figure out. This woman had been physically fine until two months earlier, and now she was growing progressively short of breath, had a little blood in her urine, and had pain in her toes which were turning blue and red in the cold. Imaging showed that she had a growth on her aortic valve and that sections of her kidneys were dying. The doctors at the outside hospital had diagnosed her with blood clots in her lungs and started her on a blood thinner, but her condition kept worsening. As the day progressed, we started all the needed tests and interventions to help sleuth out the problems and fix them. Hours into my periodic conversations with her and her mother and sister, her mother mentioned that my patient was agnostic. I realized that up to that point, perhaps because of the sheer rapidity of the way things were unfolding, I had neglected to take a spiritual history. Since I teach medical students and residents in physical diagnosis class about the importance of taking a spiritual history, you'd think that I wouldn't fall prey to this oversight, but I had. The literature shows that most patients want to be asked about their spiritual beliefs or non-beliefs, and that many think it rude if healthcare professionals don't consider this important aspect of their well-being. The question should be asked out of respect and in a non-judgmental manner. Thus I said to her, Do you have any spiritual values that you want me to know about that might influence your medical decisions? We'll get to her answer in a minute. Within 24 hours of our meeting, the patient had been checked with an array of blood tests and imaging studies. And there it was. The biopsy showed angry cells with too much nuclear size for healthy cytoplasm and prominent nucleoli. Cancer. It was everywhere then. It became a whirlwind because she got shorter of breath by the hour as the cancer and fluid literally filled up her lungs. We went from her arrival in the hope of figuring out what was wrong and seeking a cure, talking about how when she got back to her lab and students, she'd resume where she'd left off, to the depths of despair. The patient's conversations with her sister were difficult, to say the least, and at times they both got weak. Eventually, they affirmed that they had to pave a way to prevent my patient's further suffering. With her mother, however, it was much worse. She looked at me through tears and fear and screamed, This is not fair! Over and over, her sister began printing off her will from an iPad and having things notarized. 
It was surreal. I won't forget my patient's look of shock and surprise, as if she'd heard me wrong. When I told her that the cells we'd seen under the microscope were cancerous, and that the cancer had already spread throughout her body. Only eight hours after we told her that she had this incurable illness, and that our hope, which at the time seemed plausible, was to get her off the ventilator so she could talk to her family, she stopped breathing and died quietly without any apparent awareness of suffering. Throughout the day, I had tried to be diligent about ensuring that she was able to spend time with her mother and sister. The initial challenge was to use a specific approach towards sedation that balanced her comfort and her clarity of mind so that she could really engage with the family. My last memory of this young scientist is that of her breathing, unconscious and unaware of her surroundings. At this point, she was newly comatose on the sedation and painkillers as we removed the breathing tube and ventilator. I urged her family, nevertheless, tell her what you want her to know. It helps families to have no regrets in the days that follow. The story is many things, and to you it no doubt means something different than it does to me. As this woman's physician, I find that one of the most enduring aspects of the story was the palpable oneness I felt with her, and in knowing how in sync we were with everything, body and mind. There was an unusually tight connection, and I sensed that we both knew it. Since antiquity, the greats such as Plato and Aristotle have taught us the concept of body, mind, and spirit as the fullness of existence, a triad still embraced by many today. My patient and I were in tune after talking about those first two, and then when I took her spiritual history, she perceived that our beliefs diverged. She affirmed what her mother had told me, yes, I'm agnostic, and it's okay that we differ on that. I nodded and was left to wonder how and why Without having talked about this earlier, she had both understood that we differed in this third piece of the triad and thought it important to offer me reassurance. An autopsy will answer many things, like what was growing on her heart valve and the source of her cancer, which we think was bowel, pancreatic, or ovarian. But no physical finding, microscopic sighting, or laboratory test is going to help me learn any more about her spiritual side. I remember her loving manner, and her inquisitiveness about life. I know that she was thinking of her estranged father, her students, and her nieces, whom she'd never see again. She wasn't sure about the existence of the divine, but her courage, daring to face what was happening despite not wanting to hear the worst possible news, utterly confirmed the human spirit. She revealed the connectedness we have in all of our imperfect, vulnerable lives, and I can still feel it now. And again, that's Dr. E. Wesley Ely, a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He writes often for the Wall Street Journal and contributes here at Our American Stories, beautiful stories like that. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and now our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of a father from Austin, Texas named Jeff 
Sandifer. Our two boys were transitioning from Montessori, where they had great freedom. Maria Montessori was an original pioneer who believed that children could do more than we ever imagined. And so she set up a system that was more real world, gave children freedom with limits and responsibility, and treated them more like special beings with great potential than wards of the state. It's very different than sitting in a classroom and having a teacher talk at you. Montessorians tend to be in the classroom doing something that matters. So they've been in that environment, but it's time to move them into traditional school. So I go to see the very best teacher at the very best school where our daughter went for middle school. And I said, when should we transition the boys to traditional school? And he just snapped and said, once they've had the freedom like that, they won't like being chained to a desk for eight hours a day. And so without even thinking, I just reacted and I said, well, I don't blame them. And this is a very tall man, I, I won't out who he was, but you know, very well respected. And he stood there for the longest time looking at the ground. He didn't say anything. And I thought, well, gosh, I've offended him. And then he looked up and he had tears in his eyes and he said very quietly, I don't blame them either. And he shook his head. And so I went home that day and I told Laura, I know what kind of teacher he is. I got the message. We're either going to homeschool or we're going to start a school because our boys aren't going to traditional school. We're not going to do that. They're not going to be chained to a desk. So we started with seven young people in a small rented house, two of them being our children. And that was the start of Acton Academy. An academy guided by four principles. The questions that students will ask, who am I? What is it that I can do and what must I master? Because I want to be really good at something. Who will affirm me and hold me accountable? Got to have a community and people to hold me accountable. And then the third one, how do I prove what I can do? It could be a credential that has value or it can be a project I've done or it can be a portfolio, but I want to have proof. And so our four metaphors were, who am I? The hero's journey. The belief that every child is put on this earth to find a calling that will change the world. The hero's journey story, of course, is I think embedded deep inside our souls. It's a reason Star Wars works. It's a reason The Lion King works. It's that longing in human beings to go out and do something that matters. And then, of course, while the hero's in search of the grail, the lesson always is it's not whether they find the grail or not, it's how the hero changes in the process. So it's this idea of through challenge and struggle, we find out more about ourselves and our gifts. And in that struggle, along with fellow travelers and people you're walking with, you develop deep relationships and a community. And so I just think the hero's journey story is as old as time. And I think what makes our place unusual, if not unique, is everybody there believes every person there is going to change the world. When you talk about changing the world, people often uh, mistake it for saying, well, you have to be prime minister or president or the head of Google. And so we make it very clear early that you could be someone running uh, small dry cleaners with three employees and have a thousand people show up at your funeral because every day you treated customers, employees with respect and did things in the community. And you absolutely changed the world in a profound way. The what skills do I need to learn and what do I need to master? That's the beauty of the internet and Khan Academy. If you haven't used it yet, Khan Academy is a pretty cool place that lives on the internet. 
It enables you to learn just about anything at your own pace and from the best people in their fields like Sal Khan for free. Almost 12 million people do just this monthly, including innovative schools like Acton Academy. We've never taught a minute of math or reading or writing or anything. And no adult has ever taught anything in the Acton Studios, ever, ever. Now, Sal Khan has come in remotely, but no adult in authority, I should say, has ever taught. You can go find your own answers. People can move on their own pace in certain things when you can. I can watch it 23 times if I have to. So it's putting someone like Sal Khan on demand repeatedly over and over again. That's better than Mr. Coonrod, rest his soul, who taught me algebra, because I, I could only listen to him lecture once and we all had to be on the same page. He may not be the best teacher. And in fact, he may be the best teacher for you, but I don't like his voice. Well, okay, well then we'll go find someone. So there are lots of other great experts out there. They're terrific role models. And the other part is it, you having choices and having to take responsibility for your learning, if you'll do that, you can learn anything. And so this requires you to do that, and you can't blame me for not teaching you well or not inspiring you. It doesn't become personal. The personal thing is you set your goals and you reach them. There's a famous kind of uh, story that this teacher stood up at one meeting and said, we've taught the children, we've taught the children, they just haven't learned anything, blaming the children. And then a voice from the back of the room said, how do you define the verb teach in that last sentence? And so people can learn things with no teacher. Now, do I want a role model? Do I want an expert? Absolutely, adults have a role, but you don't have to teach me in this world. I can learn. And someone can stand up and teach and pontificate and talk, and the people in the room learn nothing. So we really are centered around learning, learning driven by the people who are gonna become heroes, but the one thing we don't have is a lot of adult authority. Our students write beautifully. If you start out lecturing somebody about grammar, they will hate to write. If you just get them loving to write, you can clean up the grammar quickly. If you want to fix grammar, grammar is easy. And once you learn the rules, everybody breaks them anyway on purpose. I mean, Bill Buckley used to always you know, say, I'll put my commas anywhere I damn well want to. But they learn to write beautifully. The reason is they like to critique each other. So no adult grades anything at our school. The young people grade everything. We try to remove the adults from authority, or let's say from dictatorial authority, and put them in their proper role as maybe game makers. Because if I invite you to play tennis, we're gonna to agree to a set of rules. It's not anarchy. Uh, we're gonna to to decide what the trophy might look like, and we're gonna engage in a tennis game. So we create games, invite people in to play, so if I give you a challenge you think matters for your why, three or four or one recipe or process or series of steps, you can call it our algorithm, in order to how to make that happen, and let's throw in some squads of people to work with, that's a great way to learn. And at the end of it, you can actually do something. For example, right now we're doing a cooking and chemistry quest. We're learning deep lessons about chemistry. At the same time, they're learning how to cook. At the end of all that, there'll be a public exhibition, as there always is, and we'll recreate the TV show Chopped. Have you ever seen it? So when, when you have a certain number of ingredients a certain amount of time, the teams will be cooking things for the audience, but they'll have a limited time and money for ingredients. The only way they can earn more is by getting on stage, pulling a question out of the hat about chemistry, answering it correctly, and relating it to what they're cooking at the moment. 
So to be able to do that, you have to have very deep knowledge of chemistry, not memorize formulas. That would buy your team a little more time and a few more ingredients as you compete to learn how to cook. And so anyway, that whole idea of why am I here and then what skills do I need to learn? Cooking's probably a pretty important one. But then what am I gonna master? I mean, everyone's got a gift. What is your gift? Because great gifts, when you master them, bring opportunities to you. And so as you become better at something in a domain, as you have a deliberate practice where you work hard, whether it's karate or running or cooking to be good at something, great opportunities come to you. Now, that's all easy to say, it's hard to do. That's why you need people to hold you accountable, to affirm and celebrate you. And this is where, you know, traditional teachers and the great ones, you, you probably remember two teachers from your lifetime, or three or four that really mattered. If you think hard enough about it, it probably wasn't that they taught you algebra. Mr. Coonrod taught me algebra, he was a coach. Now he was a decent algebra teacher, and I learned algebra, but what really mattered was Mr. Coonrod believed in me, he affirmed me. And so we remember great teachers because they affirm, but anyone can affirm you. They don't have to know algebra, they have to know you. And my goodness, not a lot of adult authority around that dictatorial adult authority and school centered around learning. Sign me up. I want a do-over on all of my public education because I was chained to the desk and I felt like it. And that was back in the 1970s. I can't imagine what young kids are feeling like today with all this technology. Well, I know I have a 14-year-old and she feels chained to a desk and she's bored out of her mind at least half the day, every day. And we've got good public schools. And I love the four questions that Jeff asked because I think they're just so important. Who am I? What is it I can do? And what must I master? By the way, that's where real self-esteem will come from. Mastery of something, being good at something. Three, who will hold me accountable? I don't think there's a lot of that happening many places with young people in this country. And last, how do I prove what I can do? And it's not how I feel, right? How do I prove what I can do? How can I measure it? When we come back, more with Jeff Sanifer's story, and by the way, his bride, Laura, and the story of Acton Academy here on Our American Stories. back with our American stories and Jeff Sanifer's story of being unsatisfied with the current education system and he and his wife starting their own school called the Acton Academy. America became the strongest, most powerful, fairest country on the face of the earth before we ever had an organized school system. We had one-room schoolhouses where you learned basically character education, reading, writing, arithmetic. And in many ways, acting is a return to the multi-age, one-room schoolhouse where you learn the basics in community. Then, back in those days, you would then take an apprenticeship. Now, interestingly, you also would often get seconded out before your apprenticeship age to another family down the street. And, and I don't, here's my guess as to why, it's because no one listens to their parents. 
but you will listen to your favorite uncle. And so people actually had contracts where you would send your kids to go live with another family. And of course, the towns and cities were small then. And they would send their kids to you for character education. And then you'd go to one-room schoolhouses. And then about age 13, you'd get an apprenticeship. You'd learn to master a skill underneath someone who affirmed you and held you accountable. And you learned to trade. Now, that made America. Because it wasn't until the late 1800s we had any kind of organized school systems. Those were organized around the Prussian model, around basically a military model. They were encouraged by the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, not because they were evil robber barons, but because they worried about civil unrest from waves of immigrants coming in. Now, whether that was true or not, they should have been worried, or it was a fear of the other, we don't know. But you were having lots of people come that you wanted to have become factory workers and to have a civil society, and these school systems were a way to train them. Once you understand that the early school systems were to train factory workers, long rows of industrial lockers, bells ringing every 45 minutes, the command, listen to me, look up here, kind of rote memorization and routine, all makes sense. So it wasn't an evil, stupid system. It was a way to equip people for the jobs and lives that they were gonna at least live at the turn of the 19th century when you had massive industrialization going on in the Industrial Revolution. Again, I'm not trying to cast aspersion on the Rockefellers, but if you're running a factory, you want people in those days particularly to do what you're asking them to do routinely over and over and over again. You don't have robots with AI to, to go pick things off of shelves or to make cars or to make what you're making. So they wanted people who would do what they wanted. So we could have a long discussion about that and whether it worked, but, but it doesn't make sense today. When you look out on the world, FedEx usually beats the post office. And I think in this case, there's people working very hard inside a bureaucratic institution, but Hayek had it right that you want to have as few bureaucracies as necessary reserved for those things that bureaucracies serve well. Like the legal system, the military, I mean, you probably need a bureaucracy for a lot of that. You don't want people paying for their own private or sergeant. But in most things, the market works better. Acton Academy students starting in middle school, one of the badges you have to earn to go to Launchpad. Badges is Acton's term for credentialing, and Launchpad is their term for high school. You don't have to earn the badge. You, you can choose whatever you want but you won't ever go to our launch pad without the apprenticeship badge. So you have to start at your first year of middle school doing apprenticeships. You choose the apprenticeship. You have to go get the apprenticeship. We don't bring people into you. You have to deliver on your promises and get a rating. So I can write an email that says, Alex, you're my hero because, and genuinely mean it, because you're the person I want to become. Will you give me five minutes for a phone call to explain our apprenticeship program? Didn't ask you for a job, I asked you for five minutes. In the phone call, I'm only taking five minutes, I'm gonna explain how it works and ask if I can come see you in person. Then I'm gonna go in person and I'm gonna say, Alex, you've heard about the program. I've told you, I'm gonna promise you, I'm gonna show up early, I'm gonna work late, I'm gonna do what I say I'm gonna do and I will pass this on. Will you give me a chance, just one day? Will you give me one chance to prove myself? Now. How many people say no to a 13-year-old who genuinely does that? Almost zero. When someone writes and they sincerely say, I want to become you, you're my hero because, and they know all about you, 
and I'll show up early and work late and do whatever you ask me, who's not going to say yes to that? If, it, if the person's serious about it, that's the kind of email you wait to, to hear. I remember one story, we had this one young person, she was 14 at the time, so she'd had a couple of apprenticeships and she wanted to be a lawyer. So she went and pitched this law firm and the lady, you know, emailed us. We normally don't get involved, but she emailed us and said, look, I, you know, we're a law firm. We're not about to, to, to give her any kind of apprenticeship and we certainly wouldn't pay her and we're not, you know, but, but it's the most amazing letter I've ever seen. She's incredible. She's already taken a law course from UPenn online and she's read all these books about the law and she's read Bastiat and she, so I'm at least going to meet her, but I just wanted you to know because we're worried about the legal side of whether we can even meet her. We said, okay, well, her parents have already signed off as part of our process, you can meet her. The lady calls us and said, okay, I'm gonna give her an apprenticeship. I know I said I wouldn't, and I know she's only 14, but I, got it, but I can't pay her. I said, look, that's up to you. We don't get involved in that. Okay. After about her first week, you know, okay, I just wanted to email and let you know we are gonna start paying her, but she will never get a job offer here. Well, six weeks later, at the end of the apprenticeship, she had a job offer at 14 to work for the law firm. She'd been to see clients, she'd been to court, and she was exceptional. She was incredible. And since she's gone on to college and gotten all these scholarships, we didn't make her, she made herself. Decided the law wasn't her thing right after this apprenticeship. But that story of going out and doing something I think I care about goes on a hundred times a year at Acton. I was with one of our young people, this was about six months ago, and I said, hey, uh, Derek, uh, what have you been doing lately? Because I, I just shot up a conversation walking across the campus. He goes, well, I got an apprenticeship. And I said, cool, who are you working for? And he said, Carl Rove. President George W. Bush's political strategist. And I said, you're working for Carl Rove? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, did your parents know Carl Rove? And he goes, no, no, I just wrote him the email we're supposed to. And I pitched him. I'm helping him write his new book. And it's called, like, the seven most important decisions a president's made. He goes, so I'm helping him research it. And I said, so because you like politics and writing, you convinced Carl Rove to hire you. He goes, yeah. I mean, just to him, that was just like, he didn't even, you know, it's like, do you know who Carl Rove is? I was wondering, when do they do all these apprenticeships given the school day? Well, so it's interesting. So our campus doesn't take attendance. And, you know, you, you, as long as you're doing your badges and your parents say it's okay, you can come and go a lot, particularly in high school. You, you can be off doing something most of the time if you want to. But we never know about it until the badge is submitted. And by the way, they, these employers hold them to the contract. You do have to show, you know, if you, if you show up late or you don't, we hear about it. And there's a whole rating system that the young person knows it's going to be publicly rated at the end and everyone's going to see whether they held it because that reflects on acting. By the time they're out of high school, which we call Launchpad, you know, they've probably had seven apprenticeships with reference letters. So you think a college looks at those? There's your proof of what I can do. And my goodness, where is there an Acton Academy nearby is what you're thinking, right? And again, we are not slamming public school teachers, public schools. I think what Jeff said, I think many public school teachers are nodding in agreement with. More flexibility, more power and control over their classrooms. Look, my dad was a school teacher his whole life and a superintendent of schools in a public school. And he was talking about this then, and he was begging and urging for new ways to think about how to think about educating kids. Because again, it was, Jeff is dead right. The industrial model had its place, and it had its time. We were training masses, armies of, of factory workers. 
And it made sense the way we did things, but the way we're doing things now, still doing them mostly the same, makes no sense. And my goodness, six, seven internships, some kids working their way into law firms and getting paid at the age of 14 to do work. You can't make this stuff up, folks. And it's what happens when you don't infantilize children and treat them as young agents of change for their own lives and their own growth. When we come back, we continue with Jeff Sandifer, the co-founder of Acton Academy, along with his bride, Laura. continue with our American stories and we return to Jeff Sandifer and the final portion of this remarkable story on his school, the Acton Academy. Education has a very bad habit of talking about price and cost as if they were the same thing, which they are if you never make any money, right? And we're a not-for-profit. That doesn't mean we can't generate surplus. So everything we do in a not-for-profit world, we hope generates surplus doesn't come back to us, we don't take any money out of it, but we can reinvest it in something else. So with that distinction, our tuition is still ten dollars or $11,000 a year. And Laura keeps saying, well, our costs are down below 4000 Why don't we just charge everyone 4000 And of course, if our parents are listening to this, they're going, that'd be great. I'm like, look, I paid 30000 for our daughter to go to an inferior school, so everyone's getting a bargain. I wish we'd start out pricing it at twenty. We can always offer people scholarships, but why wouldn't I price what the market will bear? So, Acton Academy's range in price. Oh yeah, there's more than one of these Acton Academies out there, as you're soon to hear about. From about $3,000 a year in tuition, to last I checked, about 30000 I pro forma cost now, and we can get to easily $4,000. Uh, we are pretty sure with a really nice campus, we can get down to $2,500 a year. If you factor in the apprenticeship income that middle schoolers and high schoolers can earn, and you assume that's an offset to tuition, we don't take that money, but a family could use that, we can get the cost pretty close to zero. Pretty close to zero. For some context on this, elite private schools cost between twenty dollars to $50,000 per year. D.C. public schools spend $28,000 per child. And the nationwide average for public schools is almost $12,000. Remember, this started out with seven young people. We weren't even, we wouldn't even have dreamed we really would have a full elementary studio, much less a middle school and a high school. The idea that there would be another Acton Academy would have never occurred to us and was a pure accident. Talk about getting lucky. So this is, you know, you're trying experiments and good things are happening. Then we had two, then we had three, and then we said, you know, maybe if we had 10, we're learning so much more from the other Actons. They're already ahead of us, and so we're, we're practicing positive deviance. We're observing the things that work and sharing them and adopting them. Maybe we should have 10. And then we started to try to go from three to six or eight. All, suddenly things exploded. Uh, now we're, it's hard for me to even keep count because it changes quickly, where it's something around 150 all sharing ideas every single day. And there's an owner's forum where, as we've been sitting here, 
I've probably gotten three ideas from around the world that someone's tried, and we all adapt them. It's amazing how much acting academies look like each other, but if you come back six months later, how different they are. Because everyone's adopting new best practices on the fly. So the model's always changing. And this isn't the only feedback loop. There are feedback loops everywhere, but probably the most important one for us is we make a series of promises to our parents. Every acting academy makes the same promises. Your child will be on a hero's journey, very simple but fundamental belief system promises. And then we ask every parent and every child every week, how are we doing? What's our net promoter score? Would you recommend this place to a trusted friend? One to 10 scale. And we live or die based on those ratings and all the ratings and all the comments are anonymous but published. And you know, just like the internet, you get some cranky people. You get some people who are probably poorly selected customers and eventually you know, will select out of the system. So it's painful when 90% of your customers are happy and 10% aren't. But we have very clear feedback and it's shared in the community and every acting academy in the world lives by that same standard. You, know, you talk about accreditation, which is a whole you know, another topic of how nonsensical it is. Well, we have the best accreditation in the world. We publicly publish our customer satisfaction ratings. And you can go look them up and you can actually see what the customers are saying. That's our ultimate quality control. I asked Jeff, does any other school in the world do this? To have 100% of your customers rating you and posting it for everyone to see. I've never heard of this before. I don't know. Um, I will say that we've had several hundred people come and ask us for tours. School officials and educators. Uh, we absolutely, you know, want to serve people, but remember we only have a couple adults on campus. And they're, you know, they're, for safety and everything else, they're busy. And so we don't have a big staff to tour people around, so we, we can't do that. What I do say every time I'm asked is, we would love to have you and your faculty come. Be delighted. However, nothing we do will work without this feedback loop. So anything we can share with you won't work. As soon as you have surveyed your community for six months every week and published the results of their satisfaction, we will give you every single thing we have. All of it. We'll copy the database and hand it to you. Got to do it first. How many tours have we given? Zero. Zero. So I don't know if anyone else is doing it. I can tell you it's a very humane way that we don't give a lot of tours. And so the reason we can expand so fast is if you become an acting owner, you put your own children in the school, and you agree to make promises and be held accountable, what are the odds you're going to build a really bad school? Not much. Juan Bonifaci, my wonderful former student who runs Acton Academy Guatemala, said, we just did this terrific quest. And I said, yeah, you know, our quests are often 100 pages long. They're so hard for us to write. And he set up these games. He goes, oh, ours took like five minutes. Said, five minutes? He goes, yeah. We, put, uh, we took duct tape and we put a little three foot by three foot box on the floor. We duct taped out a box on the floor like we could stand in. And we said, in six weeks, you will be standing in this square for no more than 10 minutes and no less than eight. You will pick a hero, you will deliver a speech in your hero's voice that you write yourself. So let's imagine Churchill, 1941, standing on a specific street corner in London, 
And you're going to get, now, if you speak less than eight minutes, you're just going to stand there. If you speak more than 10 minutes, the hook's coming out at 10 minutes. So you've got eight to 10 minutes. Good luck. That's all, this is middle school. That's all the instruction they gave them. So, you know, the, the, the six weeks came. There's no help. But can you learn how to give a speech when you look at stuff on the internet? Sure. There's, some, there's, a, there's a website called Six Minutes to Speaking or something. It's just so they brought back all these great resources for how to learn to give a speech. They worked hard and videoed their speeches and learned, and they gave these amazing speeches to a room full of 100 people. Now, the flip side of that, we had one young man that came in. He was new to the high school. He wore a hoodie. He looked like, you know, he might be one of those people you would be worried about at your school for violence. He wasn't that way, but it looked like that. He signed up for this. He stood up in front of the room and he froze. And he had to stand there for eight minutes without saying anything. And you just think about how long eight minutes is. We couldn't rescue him. We had to let it happen. He was so brave that he asked for a chance to do it again to a smaller group a week later. So people came to see it the second time. He froze the second time. He's now got this great job in high tech. He's graduated from acting, but he told me about a year ago that the most important decision he ever made in his life was after that second time. He said, I'm either gonna leave here or I'm gonna give that speech. And he went back and worked on it and he came back a third time. And he got up and he wasn't, you know, terrific, but he stood there for eight minutes and he gave his talk. And he said, that moment changed my life. That's the moment I look back to that changed my life forever. And I'll end on this because I think Sager's story and that simple having to actually do something for real that's a skill that's gonna matter in your life reminds me of the last time we had a new orientation meeting for new owners last month. And we normally have parents, but one parent was a parent educator who had been in education for years and wanted to build an acting for his family. I said, what have you learned from being here? Because you wanted to come and see if it was for real and if you could do it. And he said, it's been one of the most sobering experiences of my life. It's as if all my life I had studied tigers in a zoo and I thought I knew tigers. And now I've seen a tiger in the wild and I've seen how magnificent the creatures are and I realize that I know nothing. So what we're all about is having the tigers in the wild in the kind of civil society that they should be living in as human beings. And when you do that, it is absolutely extraordinary what young people do. They are capable of far more than you have ever imagined. They dumb themselves down for adults. They submit to arbitrary authority of force to but then they are living like tigers in a cage. And tigers were not meant to be raised in cages. And what a story. And again, that's Jeff Sandifer, the co-founder of Acton Academy, along with his bride, Laura. And you can learn more at actonacademy.org. And he's not trying to, like, grow more schools. He doesn't have a growth plan. They're just growing because you were listening to a man with deep convictions about how kids can be educated in the 21st century and how families can be agents for change on the education front. And that's what's happening all over this country. I mean, it was remarkable to hear him talk about how they could get the costs down to under 4000 and down to even 2500 And then if the young person is interning, bring the cost of education to zero 
while teaching young people how to be young adults of character and substance, going and knocking on a door and asking for an internship. Really remarkable. And I loved hearing the story about that young man who had to just perform that speech for eight minutes and him saying that the most important decision he ever made in his life was coming back that third time and giving his speech. And my goodness, tigers are not meant to be raised in cages. Jeff is right. Jeff Sandifer's story, his bride's story, Laura, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and the minute you hear that music, you're put into a time and a place. And Jesse and I often think we should be doing a two-hour special on just great soundtracks to movies, because the music is just so astounding and so good, and always suits the purpose. And again, that's the Godfather soundtrack. We love to talk about art here, and we love to talk about actors and musicians, and even comedians, our hour on Steve Martin, we urge you to go to Our American Network, go on the search button, and find that Steve Martin hour. It's terrific. There's no precedent for John Cazale. He's an anomaly in cinematic history. He appeared on the big screen, wholly formed, and immediately made an indelible imprint. And then just as suddenly, six years later, he was gone. In that short time, he created four characters in five feature films. The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part 2, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. That can still be regarded over 40 years later as benchmarks of film acting. He was Fredo, by the way, in The Godfather. And we'll get to that later, but I just wanted to give you an idea of who he was. John's work, like his life, cannot be accurately measured in duration, only in depth. The entirety of his screen time in all five movies boils down to mere minutes. But the more we see, the more we cannot look away. It isn't simply that he had the distinction of only appearing in masterpieces. It is that his performances within them are also masterpieces. Those who mistake celebrity for ability may question how good he really was, After all, he wasn't really a movie star. He was never billed above the title. But John Cazale is acting's best-kept secret. He played one of the most iconic characters in film history, as I'd said before, Fredo Corleone from The Godfather. Yet today, most people don't even know his name. To prove this point, a picture was shown of John Cazale playing Fredo to people walking the streets of New York City. Here's their reaction. You know who this guy is? Nope. Nope. Something from The Godfather. He was the oldest one. He was a little slow. They, they sounded betrayed. Yes? Yes. Did he pray? Fredo? Yeah, Fredo. Uh, Fredo. Uh, Fredo. 
Fredo. Fredo. Fredo. Do you remember? Do you, do you, do you know uh, what the actor's name is? Well, his name was Fredo. Shoot. Uh, wait. I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it. Oh, I love this guy too. What was his name? He was very good. Fredo. Uh, I know it was you, Fredo. I know it was you, Fredo. The actors John Cazale supported: Robert De Niro, Gene Hackman, Al Pacino, and Meryl Streep, among them. All said working with John Cazale made them better. He greatly influenced many others, such as Steve Buscemi, Sam Rockwell, and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who were of the following acting generations. If the Academy Awards can be regarded as an indicator of climactic excellence, John has an impeccable track record, not just for himself. He was never mentioned in the nominations for his acting probably because the Academy never caught him doing any. It's a well-known bit of movie trivia that all five films in which he appeared were nominated for Best Picture, and three of them received the Oscar. Further, he appeared posthumously in archival footage in The Godfather Part Three, which was also nominated for Best Picture, maintaining his perfect record. He is the only actor in history to have this distinction. John Cazale was more than eager to explore the dark, damaged sides of his characters. In doing so, he presented us with a human instead of a type. Let's fast forward to a scene from Godfather 2, where we hear a little bit about John's gift as an actor and his approach to his craft. We open with a scene between John playing Fredo and Al Pacino playing his brother, Michael. Mike, you don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that. Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. By the way, the subtlety in his acting uh, is, was so amazing, the, the emotional depth of it. When Al arrives in Las Vegas, and John is already there, and he's got the band set up and the hookers. He does like this kind of, the band is playing, he does this kind of thing, and it's just so brilliant. I mean, that dance. Welcome to Las Vegas. Well, his idea, right? And Al says, get rid of them. Get rid of them, Fredo. Hey, Mike. Uh, Fredo, I'm here on business. I leave tomorrow and I get rid of them. I'm tired. And the look on his face was so amazing, the, the emotional depth of it. A whole kind of person became present in that one reaction to Al ordering him about like that. Hey, come on, ram! That's where John fit in so miraculously because all of that vulnerability, all of that pain that was in John as a man is suddenly connecting with us on a level that we never thought possible. In the late 50s, we both were in acting class together, studying with Peter Cass. Peter Cass was quick to see what you might be ashamed of in yourself and in your background and to point out that this was part of who you were and that you needed every part of yourself. The idea of only presenting yourself in the best light was anathema to him. I mean, if you look at John's work, you see how willingly he went to the dark side (laughs) and how capable he was of doing that. John felt very strongly that finding the character, you had to find the pain first where that character was in pain, where he hurt. He felt that that was the major motivation and that would translate into positive choices as an actor. 
I think the artist is born in a suffering child, and uh, there are all kinds of reasons for children to suffer, and I, I don't know exactly what it was that was John's reason, but I could venture a guess, certainly. It was probably, you know, a strong, overbearing father that was difficult. The Life of John Cazale for the Hour. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the life of John Cazale. And you're listening to the soundtrack of The Deer Hunter. It's beautiful. And by the way, that, that point that somebody made before, that he knew how to find the pain in the character, that was what Cazale did. And in doing so, I think found pain in all of us. Cazale's five films received 40 Oscar nominations. In addition... Fourteen of the performances by actors he supported were nominated for Oscars. This is not a coincidence. He enriched every film in which he acted. He inspired every actor with whom he worked. Far more impressive than John's association with Oscar-nominated films was the acting he did in them. But what he did was something beyond acting, what can be called transcendent acting or non-acting. Sir Ben Kingsley observed, The camera is allergic to acting. John's characters tend to just stick in our minds because as opposed to just seeing them, we feel as if we're meeting them. For those who weren't alive when The Godfather premiered, it is hard to quantify its impact on the culture. There is no contemporary equivalent. The only comparison is the arrival of the Beatles in America. The opening of The Godfather, like the arrival of the Beatles, was similar to a cultural earthquake, Nothing was quite the same afterwards. And like the Beatles, The Godfather has remained contemporary. Shortly after the film premiered, a joke started to circulate. Someone would say, In our family, he's Fredo. Everyone would laugh because they knew exactly what that meant. The subject of the joke was weak, inept, a bit stupid perhaps, most certainly a loser. No one ever said, In our family... He's Salonzo or Clemenza or Tessio. What would that mean? But Fredo? Everyone knew. It was vivid, clear, perfect. Because the actor who portrayed Fredo, someone named John Cazale, made him vivid, clear, and perfect. From the moment he comes into view in The Godfather, he commands the screen, not through bombast or bravura, but with sublime subtlety. In the midst of the noisy activity of the wedding celebration, he slowly and quietly approaches the table where Brother Michael and Kay are sitting. Kay was played by Diane Keaton. When he appears, he is quite drunk. But John is too fine an actor to play drunk. Instead, he plays a drunken man trying to appear sober. He steps carefully and slowly, puts his hand on Kay's chair to steady himself, and kneels down in his tux to get eye level 
with Michael and Kay. How are you, Fredo? Fredo? My brother Fredo? This is Kay Adams. Hi. How are you doing? Hello. This is my brother Mike. Are you having a good time? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, this is your friend, huh? <laughs> the whole scene takes 21 seconds, but it tells us vital information. Fredo is a lover and a family of killers. With his inhibitions lowered by alcohol, we see he is sweet, he's affectionate, he's soft-spoken. He doesn't belong there. He's not looking for power. He's looking for love and acceptance. And maybe, just maybe, a little bit of respect. But the scene where Don Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, is shot in front of his son Fredo, Brando was reportedly so impressed with John's commitment to his role that he laid in the street off camera while John shot his close-ups to afford him the greatest sense of reality in the scene. After The Godfather, John was cast as Stan, the assistant to an introverted paranoid surveillance consultant in The Conversation, a psychological mystery thriller written, produced, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring Gene Hackman. Here's Coppola, Meryl Streep, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was able to tackle anything that came up in the first Godfather. Then I wrote a role for him in the conversation. <laughs> He's a nice guy for a cop. I knew what was just a character of an assistant would suddenly come to life as a real character. The conversation was a cult film people already had it on as their favorite film of all time especially people who wanted to show that they were impervious to the mass taste you know like it's not the godfather that i love the most it's i would almost bet money that all the actors that worked with him were inspired by what he did on the day to take it that much further to be that much more creative or, or risky uh, or personal because he seemed to be kind of uncomfortably vulnerable I mean, everything he did and that always makes people go oh, i think i gotta work a little harder <laughs> i think i better rethink what i'm doing here because this guy's really going for it this guy's really going for it and that was philip seymour hoffman that last clip John took roles that no actor would want, and by virtue of his performances, he managed to turn them into parts every actor wished he'd played. Here's Al Pacino and Meryl Streep. Streep starred with Gazelle in his last film, The Deer Hunter, and was also his longtime girlfriend. Fredo, come with me. It's the only way out of here tonight. Roth is dead. Fredo. He became whoever it was he was playing. And he did that by asking questions, because he taught me about asking questions and not having to answer them. That's the beauty. What's wonderful about it is you open the door to things. Directors used to call him 20 questions. He was never, never, never satisfied with just the outlines of a character or just filling out the expected thing. He got so much from the delving into things. It was a lesson in itself. I think I learned more about acting from John anybody that's a pretty heady statement that's al pacino saying he learned more about acting than anybody and he studied with lee strasberg and he studied with uta hagen the two masters of the new york theater and a film amazing there are moments in each of john cazale's performances so real so vulnerable 
that one wonders if he should be watching. Unlike most actors, there was never an instance in any of his performances when John was winking at the audience, trying to signal that the character's deficiencies didn't apply to him personally. Here's Francis Ford Coppola on the infamous I'm smart and I want respect scene from The Godfather 2 between Cazale and Pacino. Cazale's haunting countenance and strong portrayal of weak characters is unmatched. I remember when we shot that scene and uh, and, and thinking that uh, we had shot something really that had come to life and was extraordinary and you know, very definitely the way Casal used the chair because that chair was there and certainly you could slump in it and everything but somehow he used it to express what was the point in a way that um, I had never anticipated. I've always taken care of you, Fredo. Taken care of me? You're my kid brother, and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this, send Fredo off to do that. Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart and I want respect. He's such an imp. You know, he's so irresponsible and he'd be so desperate. He's so anxious to get his piece of the pie and to be respected. Heartbreaking scene. And what are we talking about? We're talking about a ter- totally antisocial, probably terrible man. And Cazal uh, broke your heart. He really let himself out there. He's really vulnerable. You know, it's not easy to play weak. You know, if you get the script for The Godfather, you know, every young actor is going to want to play Sonny or Michael, you know? They're not going to want to play Fredo. You want to be strong, and you want to be, hmm. So you want to say, look how talented I am. Weakness is something that a lot of actors, I think, are afraid to play. They'll, they'll play weak men, but they'll do it in a really sort of showboaty way to let you know that they're not weak, that it's a performance. And Cazal was just so disinclined to do that. And by the way, we're disinclined to do that in our lives, too. We all do it. We know it. And we do it with our friends. We do it with our family members. And I think this is why we seek refuge in art. It is the one place where we can then talk to people about characters and talk about ourselves while we're doing it. And that's why we spend a lot of time here in art and storytelling. And this is Our American Stories. And when we come back, more on the life of John Cazale. One of the great actors you know but don't know. Who changed, I believe, and I know Greg who helped and did this piece. We've changed acting as we know it for some of the great actors in America. More after these messages.
We're talking about John Cazale for the hour. And we love talking about art here on Our American Stories and Music. And what's beautiful about movies is the intersection of screenwriting, so there's the writing, there's that human talent, almost that operatic talent of the actor, and then, of course, there's the music. And again, one day we're going to be putting together, and I hope real soon, just an hour or two on soundtracks and the stories of the people behind those soundtracks, because a soundtrack can make or break a movie. And you're listening to the soundtrack from The Deer Hunter. And by the way, to remind you, Kazale, well, he created four characters in five feature films that I think can still be regarded as benchmarks of film acting. And the films he were in, all of them received Oscar nominations. And that's pretty unbelievable. John's art was ahead of the curve in the evolution of acting. That's what made him special. When the 20th century began with silent movies, acting was demonstrative, it was demonstrative, it was exaggerated. Lots of big gestures. It was still based in the traditions of the stage. Because on the stage, you've got to hit the back row. And thus, the big gestures. As the technology developed, first with the introduction of sound, and then with the refinements in the process itself, Actors came to understand they could be subtler in their performances. Still, the desire to emote, to show off, was always present. During the 1950s, actors such as two of John's idols, Montgomery Cliff and Marlon Brando, embraced Stanislavski's method of acting. And he's a Russian critic and teacher of acting and began to explore the underlying motivations and emotions in their characters. So, in other words, going from representational acting to, well, getting under the skin acting. This resulted in greater realism, along with heightened emotionalism, which showed itself in climactic moments. John didn't push anything. Instead, he could invite people in and compel them to draw closer to the character he was playing. But back to the story. What John knew was that our perception of someone comes from nonverbal input, much more than verbal. How many times have you said, quote, I met this guy and he seemed okay, but there was just something about him I didn't like. It was nothing he said or did, that's for sure. It was just a sense that you got about him. That sense comes from all the energy generated by what the guy is thinking and feeling, all the things that make up his history, and therefore his personality. It works the same way in acting, and Cazale knew how to find this life in his characters. Paradox was always present in his work. He didn't play good guys. All his characters had flaws, some more than others. He played a pimp, a thief, and perhaps a killer, and a braggart who waved a gun in the faces of his friends and, at least once, punched a woman. The most normal of his characters was a professional voyeur. Yet somehow, we have affection for each of these men, or at least an acceptance of them, and that's because John never judged the character he was playing. He understood the character, all the characters. Such understanding can only come through exploring their humanity, their motivation. Here's Steve Buscemi 
and co-star Al Pacino discussing Cazale's role as bank robber Sal in Dog Day Afternoon. Just from the moment you see him on screen in Dog Day Afternoon, he's so... Um, you the manager? He's so strange-looking, you know, a really intense face, and then, you know, the, the receding hair, uh, hairline, the huge forehead, and then the long hair. Um, I had just never seen a character like that on film before. Just keep talking like nothing was wrong. I remember we were casting, and Sidney Lament wanted a, a 19-year-old boy. To, he thought that would be very important, and he was sort of right. I'd been reading a lot of people for it, and Al kept asking me to, uh, to read John. So, of course, Sidney, I would think, well, John, that's not what I'm thinking. John Cassell, no, the guy who did Fredo, no. Finally, because I've got such respect for Al, John came in. I was just stunned. He could not have looked wronger. And then he read. And it was just the most extraordinary connection. Are you going back to that prison, Sonny? I mean, I got the image of him in my mind, you know, that image of that character, oh, man. Everything he did, the hair, that, the movement. Yo, come with me. Watch him. Sit down, sit down. The intensity. Wow. You know, he's very intense, uh, but, but nervous. I mean, you felt at any time that he could really lose it. Stay right there! Cazal is scary in that movie. He completely erases the dynamic that he had with Pacino in the Godfather movies. Hey, you, manager! Don't get ideas! I bark, that man there, see him? He fights. You don't ever really believe when you're watching the movie that Pacino is going to kill someone. Cazal, you think, might. There's a way out of this. I'm Listen, telling you, there's a way out of this. Were you serious about what you said? About what? About the throne. About throwing those bodies out the door. Yeah, well, that's what I want, and you know, that's what I want him to think. No, I don't know what you think. Because I'll tell you right now, I'm ready to do it. Well, I'll tell you something. When he says that line, you believe he's ready to kill somebody just out of fear, you know? And, and I think that, that intensity level's in his eyes throughout the entire film. He, he provides that. It's right there, those eyes. It's like they cut to him a lot in that movie. And it's because it's he's got that, he's got the stakes. And Lamette needs that to get the audience revved up. There's just something in that face that takes you into uh, an area that's very dark, personally dark, and heartbroken. Heartbroken and dark. And, well, that's Cazale. A compelling choice John made was to play Sal in this movie in the direction opposite that which most actors would choose. Typically, the psychotic gunman starts out soft-spoken and builds to a frenzy by the climax of the film. But here, instead, Sal is commanding at the start, barking orders at people, dominating them, then, as the situation grows more complicated, he retreats inside of himself. And the quieter he gets, the more dangerous he becomes. And by the way, that's so complicated and so brilliant. And you would read a script, and there's no way you could come up with that. You know, when I first looked at a screenplay and a script for theater, and I studied acting for a long time, I just was so overwhelmed with all the choices you could make 
how to do it. It's not like reading a novel. When you read a novel, it's all there for us. But in the end, I agree with something a great acting coach once said. For the ordinary American, for the ordinary person, or even the average actor, it's best to just watch Shakespeare performed, because to read it is to miss the point. It's a blueprint for actors. And it's an emotional blueprint. And there's emotional data all over the place. But the average person can't see it. They can't see the subtext. They can't see the stage. They can't hear the music. And my goodness, Cazell could hear all of that. He could see all of it somehow. And that's what made him great. Also, what he did was these opposites. He, he was able to do the opposite. If you ever get to see On the Waterfront, there's a scene where Rod Steiger is going to sell out his brother. He's telling his brother, an aspiring possible boxing champ, to throw a fight for the mobsters. And you would think Marlon Brando would come through the seat and punch his brother. But all Brando does is the opposite. And all he says is, Charlie, Charlie. Like he was just disappointed. That's what made Brando great. It's what made Cazale great. This is Our American Stories, our final segment on the life of John Cazale after these messages. Friends say John Cazale had a great sense of humor. As with all other aspects of his acting, there was no effort to his humorous moments, no reach. He never signaled intent to be funny. He was completely real, but was capable of such subtle nuance. He catches us unexpectedly, and we laugh in spite of ourselves. To be sure, though, like in The Godfather, we are laughing at Fredo, this sad little drunken man, not with him as it was with Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp. He is not in on the joke. But there is such vulnerability to him that we almost feel embarrassed by our laughter. Let's go back to Cazell's performance in Dog Day Afternoon. There isn't a sadder character than, than Sal in Dog Day Afternoon, and yet he's hilarious. Sal! Sal! What? Where are you? And it's not about funny lines at all. It's just, uh, I mean, from the haircut to the... Er, everything everything about it is comic. Now, you got to understand something. If we leave the country, there's no coming back here. One of the funniest moments in the movie was completely unexpected. It was an improvised moment. Is there any special country you want to go to? Wyoming. No, Wyoming. It's not a country. That's all right. I'm going to take care of it. Now, I don't know where that came from. I know that the take was almost ruined because I started to laugh, but I, thank God, didn't wreck the soundtrack. And Al almost broke up. You know, that's a laugh. If you want to get a laugh there, he would no more go for that, you know. 
And so because of that, it's just instead of, you know, he goes past the stage of, ha ha, Wyoming, that's not a country. He, he goes past that and you are forced into this sort of anxiety and sorrow for the guy. Even in the funniest characters that he played, there was also always something tragic in it. Indeed. Even in the most tragic characters, there was always something very funny. The character he's creating, I believe, is not some, is not necessarily something that, that that the director or the writer envisioned. I think what he brought to it ultimately was something that surprised the hell out of everyone on the day it happened. Yeah, you'd start a scene, and then you know it would never start. That was the beauty of it. Then you realize, don't start. There's no such thing. It's just it's a continuum. You know, everything is a continuum, and so he would just. Say, what'd you do today, Al? After I just said a line to him, you know, he said, you seem like you, uh, you said you were going to go to so-and-so. And he would get you there. And you would just do this dance until you found your way. And then the improvisations would start, which was, and then the improvisations would go. And when they started to connect to what the reality of the scene was, he'd start to see, God, it was just, it was glorious. It was glorious. I've seen a ton of actors around John just give it a couple of minutes and you just see them go, what's that? What's he doing? How's he do that? No. What's the matter with you? You made me a promise. Didn't you? Did you promise me something, huh? Yeah. Did you say either we get away clean or we kill ourselves? Did you say but that? But I'm not talking. Did you? I'm not talking about that. I do believe. Do you believe in keeping your promises? Huh? Yeah, but I'm not talking. Does it still go? Yeah, it still no, goes. Well, what the f are you talking about? Other actors either, you know, rose to the occasion and they didn't. Pacino definitely did. I think Al is one of the great actors of my generation. And uh, John gets a big assist. He just, he constantly made him better and better. He was inspiring. I mean, you just got, you got, a, you got inspired by it. So you did it. You went, he made you better. After Dog Day Afternoon... Kazal, a heavy smoker, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. At the time, casting had begun for the 1978 epic Vietnam War drama The Deer Hunter, starring Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken. Kazal was cast as Stanley, a Pennsylvania steelworker. All scenes involving Kazal were filmed first. Because of his illness, the studio initially wanted to fire him. But Meryl Streep, John's girlfriend, whom he was living with at the time, and director Michael Cimino both threatened to walk away if they fired him. He was also uninsurable at the time, and according to Streep, Robert De Niro paid for his insurance because he wanted John Cazale in the film. It was going to be all right, Nicky. Go ahead, shoot. I learned about when we were, Michael and I were meeting with actors and I was reading with some actors. At one point, uh, he wanted to use John and, and there was an issue about his being not well. John Cazal had already been diagnosed with cancer and was uninsurable. Obviously, if, if you die halfway through um, giving your performance, it's going to cost a great deal of money to recast you. And Bob De Niro went to bat for John he won't tell me because he's a very generous person, but I think he secured the bond on John's uh, participation. He was uh, sicker than we thought, but I wanted him to be in it. So Bob put his money down and 
got him in the film. And he was great in the movie. I mean, he was just beautiful in it. Hey, stars. Hey! 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 Look at this! Hey, Mikey! Hey, man, how you doing? All right. Hey, where was you? Where was you? Where was I? Where were you? Where was you? We had everything all set there. The beer, the fried axle. Am I right? Huh? Got a mustache. Yeah. Hey, he looks pretty good. I think it's very clear that, that his talents were getting richer with every movie. I remember watching that movie. I just felt like I was there in that town with these guys. I, I didn't feel like they were acting. Anybody see my boots? He's saying, uh, you know, let me, let me your boots. Let me your boots. And uh, De Niro's like, no, man. Hey, Mike, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your extra pair? No, Stan. What do you mean, no? Just what I said, no. No means no. Some friend. You're some friend, you know that? You gotta learn, Stanley. Every time you come up here, you got your head up your ass. Maybe he likes the view from up there, huh? <laughs> he says, uh, he says, Stan, you see this? This is this. This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own. Hey, you know your trouble, my kind? Nobody ever knows what the f you're talking about. This is this. What the hell is that supposed to mean? This is this. You can watch the movie and the scenes that, that he's in and, and just watch him and be thoroughly entertained or really moved. And that was Steve Buscemi. John Cazale died before the deer hunter was released. He was 42. No story about John Cazale is complete without mentioning his girlfriend and, again, a young actress at the time named Meryl Streep. But the most amazing thing to see was Meryl during all of this and the way she was with him and by his side right, right through the whole thing. Meryl, she was with him to the end, and she, at the hospital at the end, she was an angel. She was... I so admired how, how she behaved. It was... It was very beautiful. It was very, he was a very fortunate guy to have someone who loved him that much during his last days. When I saw that girl there with him like that, I thought, there's nothing like that. I mean, that's, that's it for me. As great as she is in all her work, that's what I think of when I think of her, that moment. That's what I think of. Here's Al Pacino sharing a story about his friend. I was doing a play called The Basic Training of Pablo Hummel on Broadway. And it was a really great role. And I had, I had done things with it, and I had gotten the Tony Award, and I was really, uh, you know, I remember John was coming to see it. And I don't like to know when anyone's in the house, but I knew John was in the house, right? And every single thing I did, every scene I did, I was trying to impress John. And I knew I'm doing this. I'm saying this. I'm not doing this. I'm trying to impress John. You know? And uh, it was over. And I was really unhappy because I knew I hadn't done it. And John came back. <laughs> and he said, it's very impressive. <laughs> very impressive. I thought, yes, John. I said, you know what? I said, he was so graceful, though. He was so gracious about it all. But I, I said, you know, I, I, I knew you were there, and I was trying to, I was doing everything twice as much as I had to do it, you know. He says, it was good, Al. It was good. It was good. He said, you don't know. You don't realize that, you know, you've been there. But I knew I had. 
So I was very, you know, he was like one of my idols, so that when he was coming to see me, it was, you you give all out, and that's the worst thing you can do, is try to impress your your friends who you love. Imagine how good John Cazell was, though. Al Pacino was nervous and wanted to impress him. Here's one final story about John from Steve Buscemi. I had a really weird experience, uh, surreal. I did uh, a voice on uh, The Simpsons where I played a bank robber. So I'm watching The Simpsons when it aired, and my partner, they, they did a likeness of uh, John Cassell. I was like humbled. I was like, oh my God, I'm acting with John. I don't know, I just, I like really felt proud. <laughs> I was like, hey, I really did, you know, I really did become an actor and this proves it, you know. Screenwriter and director Israel Horowitz, who knew and loved John well, who found the same astonishment in him that so many others had, may have discovered the ideal summation when he called his friend, quote, a small perfection. And so he was. And in his films, so he is. The Life of John Cazale. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this script, Greg, as always. Great job, team. Let's go out with The Godfather. <laughs> 